danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 361 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. This is going to be an all-strategy episode, a solo Andrew episode. I just want to make sure I get a new episode out for you all. Um, Today's strategy segments both focus on uh, a spot that I think a lot of people struggle with, which is um, playing over pairs, in this case specifically pocket aces, uh, when you're like kind of deep, when the pot is multi-way, when the flop is sort of scary. Um, we've got like a jack-10-9 flop and a 8-7-6 flop, something along those lines. Um, and there are, you know, there, there are tough decisions here, and, and they really get to more than just how do you play an overpair, how do you play aces. I mean, there's there's more fundamental poker strategy at work there. So I think these are um, two very interesting questions, which even if you feel confident in your answer to these specific questions, I think you'll still benefit from the more general thoughts about you know, how to approach um, thinking about playing No Limit or a big bet game in general. So I'm looking forward to bringing you those. Uh, Before I do, uh, biggest news to announce is that I am going to be uh, doing the uh, or, or assisting with, um, I will be one of the instructors at uh, Solve for Wise uh, World Series of Poker Homeschool, um, which is going to be a series of uh, well, they're they're real time seminars, so you can you can participate in real time. Um, they're also going to be recorded, so everyone who signs up for this will get access to the entire course, whether or not you can um, make the the seminars at the time that they happen. These will be running for three weeks, starting on September 7th, although again, you don't have to be there at the exact uh, time in order to participate. Uh, It will be happening uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Other instructors, Matt Berkey, Matt Hunt, Jesse Sylvia. Um, As I mentioned myself, I'll be doing uh, two of these, Landon Tice and Russell Thomas. So you got quite a diversity of people covering a lot of different topics. Personally, I'm going to be talking about uh, raise first in and and like pre-flop range construction things. And uh, I also will be talking about, um, I feel like there's not a great word for this. I mean, table dynamics, but just some some kind of big picture strategizing about uh, where you should expect or or where you you can try to find value, like assessing a given table, I think, like getting a sense of how you want to approach a particular table strategically um, in terms of, you know, assessing who the other players are, what the implications of that for your strategy will be, thinking about some bigger picture things like whether and when the table might break and what the rest of the field looks like, uh, how risk averse you should be. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in that um, 
in that area, I, I had a lot of uh, fun putting together the curriculum for that. So I think you all will enjoy that. Um, to sign up, you can go to solvefory.io. And uh, I apologize, this um, this URL is a little complicated, but I will get a little commission if you sign up using it. So I would appreciate it. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes. I'll have a link on my uh, Twitter feed, which is uh, twitter.com slash thinkingpoker. But um, so solvefory.io backslash question mark VIA equals Andrew. So that's the way that you uh, tag your sign up as being something that you heard about on this show. Again, probably the easiest way to do that will just be to click a link from the show notes or uh, from the Thinking Poker Twitter feed. Uh, but certainly would appreciate it if you do choose to participate. I mean, of course, I'll appreciate you participating anyway, but uh, I like getting paid. Okay, so um, questions for the strategy segment. Uh, the first of these is coming to us from Seth, who says, uh, Hi, Andrew and Nate. I think I've listened to every episode of Thinking Poker over the years, driving back and forth from work. My name is Seth, and I'm a 53-year-old, aka Old Man Coffee, high school English teacher from Chicago who plays poker recreationally. I win some years, I lose some years. I often wonder if I'm losing the most money on pretty standard hands where I'm not sure what to do. I would love your thoughts. Playing a 1-2 no limit game on Poker Bros. It's the same group of players for the last 5-6 to six months. We're 7 handed. Uh, the low jack opens to $6. His profile, uh, he's definitely loose aggressive. He's a solid player willing to provide action. I'm on the button with pocket aces, uh, ace of clubs, ace of hearts. I have $250. I'm the effective stack. Uh, while I'm not totally old man coffee, I am seen as tight. I've been told by different players that I don't bluff enough and that they will more likely fold to my three bets than to some other players for what it's worth. Uh, so we've got an open from the low jack to six. Our hero is on the button with pocket aces, makes it $24. The villain calls. Uh, so, so far, so good. I mean, the, the fact that that's your image may have some implications for... Uh, how you play other hands. I don't think it's a reason to flat with aces. Like, even if you are perceived as kind of tight, um, you still have a lot of incentive to raise with aces because even people who perceive you as tight, like, they're not going to fold kings, they're not going to fold queens, they're not going to fold jacks, they're not going to fold ace king. Like, the hands that you want your opponents to have when you have aces. Um, I think too often people, fo I mean, and it's too, uh, to Seth's credit that he's not doing this. I think too often people. Um, they put image first, you know, so they think, well, people see me as tight, so I can't three bet when I have aces. I mean, just because they see you as tight doesn't mean they're going to fold kings to your three bet, right? Like it, the, your image is only affecting things at the margin. So, I mean, this might be reason why it would be profitable for you to three bet some other hands and, and like get more than your share of fold equity. But I don't think it's a reason not to, to three bet aces. There's, there's a lot of value in three betting aces. And clearly, like our hero has made a large three bet and still been called by a player who's out of position. So, I mean, obviously he's not perceived as so tight that people are just folding everything. So we go to the flop with $51 in the pot, which means 225-ish dollars in the effective stack. So the stack to pot ratio is like 4.5. Um, and the flop is jack of clubs, 10 of clubs, nine of diamonds, and the villain checks. Now right here is I think where you need to start assessing um, a plan for the hand. Like you really want to think about not just a uh, street by street decision. So you don't want to, I'm, I'm going to give you some ideas of how not to make this decision. <laughs> this is, these are, I'm not attributing any of this to Seth, but these are common decision-making processes here. Um, I three bet pre-flop, so I should bet the flop. I could have strong hands, so I should bet the flop. 
I don't want to see more cards, so I should bet the flop. There are draws on the board, so I should bet the flop. I want to find out where I'm at, so I should bet the flop. None of these are good reasons for betting. You want to start by thinking about um, really two questions, and, and most of you have probably heard me suggest these two questions before. Uh, the first of which is how much are you benefiting from folds? And I don't mean how much do you want your opponent to fold, like how badly would you like it if they just folded? I mean, given the hands that they are actually likely to fold, um, how much will you benefit from having them fold those hands? Like how likely is it that those hands will beat you if you don't cause them to fold now? And the second half of that is how happy are you going to be to play a large pot? So let's start with the second of those questions first. Um, so our stack-to-pot ratio is like 4.5. We have an overpair. Uh, stack-to-pot ratio 4 or 5 is right around the point where it's like borderline whether or not you want to stack off with an overpair. Um, if we were a lot shallow, like if the stack-to-pot ratio were 2, I'd say you could pretty trivially just like get it in here. If the stack-to-pot ratio were like 9, I would say it's very dangerous to get it in here. Um, stack-to-pot ratio in the 4 to 5 neighborhood is, you know, is, uh, right away, like I think it's not, um, it's not like cause for alarm that you have a tough decision here. This is legitimately a, a sort of tough spot. I will say that, you know, this is one of the worst flops for aces. I mean, it, it helps a little bit that you have a backdoor club draw. I mean, there's no truly terrible flops for aces because there's no one card that's just like a disaster the way if you have pocket kings and an ace flops, you know, like, so there's lots of flops that are bad for kings just because, you know, most flops that have an ace on them are bad for kings. But when it comes to aces, you know, there are no truly disastrous flops, but especially in a three-bet pot, like, jack-10-9 is um, pretty close to as bad as it gets. Like, there is a, a lot that you're losing to, and I think that you really... Um, so I think like knowing that a stack to pot ratio of 4.5 is, is pretty borderline for stacking off with an overpair uh, anyway, and then recognizing this is a pretty bad flop for your hand, relatively speaking, um, I would say right away my plan is like, I, I don't think you're looking to play a big pot here. Uh, now the board could develop, like, I mean, maybe you run out the nuts, maybe your opponent checks you again on the turn and you start to think that, you know, you, you feel pretty confident that your hand is good. But I think right now with the, the information that we have, with just knowing that this is the flop, knowing what the stack to pot ratio is, knowing that the villain was willing to call a three bet, uh, out of position pre-flop, I don't think you should be too excited to play a big pot on this board. And we can certainly name hands that you're ahead of, but, uh, I can also name plenty of hands that you're losing to. And, and part of the problem is the hand that you're losing to you're in very very bad shape against you know you're you're in awful shape against the straight you're in awful shape against the set um and often the hands that you're ahead of you're not like you're not that big of a favorite against queens you're not that big of a favorite against queen jack uh, because these hands have a draw to go along with their pair so i don't think the playing a huge pot is really in your interest that doesn't necessarily mean betting is wrong we still have to consider that other question which is how much do you benefit from folds and this is one that I think a lot of people get wrong because they look and they see a lot of draws on the board and they think, well, I don't want to see any more cards and therefore I really want my opponent to fold. That's not what this question means. This question means, um, like, name the hands your opponent is actually going to fold when you bet here. I think it's going to be stuff like pocket sixes, pocket sevens, uh, even pocket sevens has a gut shot, but like <laughs> pocket sixes, um, like 
a six of hearts. Um, I think that the hands that are folding to a bet are hands that are drawing very badly against you anyway. I mean, yes, there's a flush draw on the board. Yes, there are straight draws. Those hands aren't folding. If someone has two clubs, they're not folding. If someone has uh, queen jack or even queen nine, they're, they're not folding. Now, yes, you can bet and get some value from those hands. But again, the, the, the trade-off, the risk of betting is that you might uh, you might also be building a pot against a hand that you're in very bad shape against. Um, the other risk of betting is that you might get check raised, and um, I think getting check raised is a very bad spot. And, and what I mean by a bad spot is that I don't think there's an obvious right play when you get check raised. You know, there's um, there are many hands that you could be behind, and you would prefer to not put more money in when when your opponent has a set but there's also a lot of hands you could be ahead of and it would be a real shame to fold to a check raise from like king five of clubs here uh, you know you lose a lot of equity when when you do that so really it's i mean i, th- I would just say that's a reason not to bet is that you don't want to put yourself in a spot where you might face that check raise so i see actually very little reason to bet here i don't think we're gaining very much from folds i don't think we want to play a large pot i think you can start by checking and um, you can still put money in later. I mean, or at least you'll have more information about what the board looks like before you decide whether to put money in later. I mean, if the turn is like the eight of diamonds and your opponent bets big, uh, you might just choose to fold right there. I mean, and that's okay. And it doesn't mean that you lost the pot because you checked. Um, it might've been that you were behind all along and you just saved yourself money by, by checking. So I think w- if you start with that game plan of like, do I really want to play a large pot with this hand? Then I think that you can make a better decision about whether or not to bet. I think too often people, and again, I don't mean to attribute this to Seth, but people are more focused on how can I win this pot? Or how do I make sure I don't get bluffed? Uh, rather than what do I really want? Or uh, uh, Both of those are ways of focusing on like specific parts of the opponent's range. And you really need to focus on the all of your opponent's range. Like to say, how do I make sure I don't get bluffed? You know, that's only worrying about the weakest part of my of your opponent's range. Or like, how do I make sure I don't get drawn out on? That's only focusing on one part of your opponent's range. And you can't just ignore on a board like this all the hands that you might be behind. So I think you have a medium strength hand here, a hand that's not terribly in need of protection. And those are pretty good arguments for checking. Uh, Seth did not check. Seth bet half pot, twenty-five fifty, and the villain calls. So we go to the turn with one hundred and two dollars in the pot, two hundred dollars in the effective stacks, and the turn is the six of diamonds. So the board is now jack of clubs, ten of clubs, nine of diamonds, six of diamonds. Our hero has pocket aces with the ace of clubs. Good news: um, we didn't get raised on the flop. It's certainly possible the villain is slow playing something, but not getting raised on the flop suggests that, I mean, it's it's a good indication, right? Uh, I, I think the, the hands that beat you are less likely as a result of you not getting raised on the flop, so I think you can feel better about putting money in on the turn than on the flop. Um, also, the, this is a pretty safe turn card. I mean, you were already losing to 8-7. Um, I guess pocket 6 has got there. For some reason, pocket 6 has called your flop bet. But you know, I think this is like a pretty safe turn card. So uh, you dodged a lot of bullet. Mostly you just dodged the bullet of getting check raised on the flop. You dodged the bullet of getting a bad turn card. Once you dodge both of those bullets, now you have a lower stack to pot ratio. Even though I was arguing for pot control on the flop, I think it's basically too late for that. Like you took a lot of risks on the flop. Um, it you know turns out those risks didn't pan out. So like take advantage of the spot that you're in. Now I think you can bet again for value and maybe even be willing to get all the money in on on a blank river. Um, Hero checks behind. 
And the river is the Five of Hearts. Now the villain bets $33 into a pot of 102. Uh, the final board, Jack of Clubs, Ten of Clubs, Nine of Diamonds, Six of Diamonds, Five of Hearts. Hero has pocket aces with the Ace of Clubs. So villain just bets 33. Uh, hero calls and beats the villain's Ace Jack. Uh, before I say any more, let me read you the rest of Seth's question, because I really like the way that he's thinking about this, even though I have some disagreements with how I played the hand. I think in, in terms of like getting better at poker, he's asking a lot of the right questions and, and thinking a lot of the right things. He says, uh, this is a pretty standard spot where I have an overpair and the board comes down very wet. My bet on the flop seems obvious. Well, <laughs> you've heard my thoughts on that. Um, however, if he raises flop, I'm actually not sure what I'm supposed to do. Um, because I have ace of clubs blocking a chunk of his bluffs, I wouldn't even say that's, I mean, I think even without the ace of clubs, I, I still wouldn't be sure what to do. Uh, should I better check the turn? My more aggressive friends say absolutely I should bet. I should look to get three streets versus this villain. And if he had two pair or a set, he would have check raised the flop. So he's capped at one pair and a draw at best. Poker Snowy says I should check back the turn most of the time, if my friend is using it correctly. <laughs> and if I bet turn and villain raises, is this a bet fold spot? Uh, then having checked the turn, should I always call the river when he makes this blocking bet, or can I consider a raise? I basically won the minimum on this hand. When he bets 33 into 102, I feel like he's pretty capped at one pair. But will his ace-jack or ace-10 or queen-jack call a river raise, and what kind of raise should it be? A click back to try and win a bit, a bit more, or a big bet to represent missed ace-king of clubs or ace-queen of clubs? It seems crazy to turn a hand with such showdown value into a thin value raise, but maybe it's a good play? Again, I think I'm basically a break-even player because I often make the minimum in hands where maybe I can press edges. I know that all the hands we have an overpair to a wet board are not the same, but this is a spot we all face regularly, so any analysis and advice would be really educational. Thanks for the many years of enjoyment. Thank you, Seth, for listening, for writing. Um, I think the, my, my favorite part here is when he says, uh, I think I'm a break-even player because I often make the minimum in hands where maybe I can press edges. I think that's so important. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of, I mean, actually, I mean, it's kind of telling even when Seth says, like, I think betting the flop is pretty obvious. Like there are a lot of plays in poker that seem obvious and are either maybe just not as correct as people think, um, or at least there are exceptions to them. And if you want to get better at poker, I mean, at, at some point, like when you're very early in your poker career, getting it better at poker kind of just takes the form of like learning the base like learning what are the obvious plays you know when you when you start learning poker you don't even know those like very fundamental things so you just like bet when the flop is good for you fold bad hands pre-flop have some idea of what hands are worth playing from what positions you know the, there are these kind of basic rules that you learn uh, guidelines we should really call them that you learn when you're just starting out at, at poker um but at some point you're playing and, and like everyone you're playing against has learned mostly those same things. Or I mean, maybe you're lucky enough to have one or two people in your game who's like really doesn't get those things and you can have an edge on those players without trying very hard. But once you all know the same basic guidelines, I mean, of course you're going to break even if, if you're all just kind of playing the same way or it just comes down to like who gets dealt the better cards. Uh, the way that you're going to have an edge on other people who are who are just sort of doing the obvious things is you need to find times when the the quote obvious play is actually not correct and, and you do need to be a little bit more ambitious and you know sometimes that involves taking a little bit more risk but I also think that being 
rigorous with your hand reading and really thinking about um, having, having like a plan for the hand would help a lot. So while I do think that like there's a lot to be said for checking back the, the flop, I mean, I also think that once you bet the flop and you don't get raised, um, it, it, it's not about a guarantee. So, I mean, I don't know that I would say the opponent is capped. Like, I don't think it's impossible that he's just slow playing something, but I would say that strong hands are less likely. And poker isn't about guarantees. I mean, poker is, it is a gambling game. And what you're doing when you bet the turn is you are betting that you have the best hand. And you don't have to have the best hand all of the time. You just have to have the best hand enough time to enough you know, to make that bet worth doing. Um, I think you probably want to fold to a raise. My general expectation is that people aren't going to uh, raise here without good hands, without hands that, that beat you. But you can also see, um, I mean, this might be something, I guess you're, if you're playing online, you don't really have this option. When you're playing live, sometimes you can kind of tell whether it seems like your opponent is is agonizing over the decision or whether he's like excited to raise you. Uh, that can be an important metric. Uh, but I think the really the bigger thing is like, if you're not going to feel good about betting this turn, why did you bet the flop? Right. What, what did betting the flop do for you? If, I mean, clearly, so you get to the turn, you, you get the, the best possible outcome on the flop, which is that your opponent doesn't raise you. You get essentially the best possible turn, or damn near the best. I mean, it's not an ace, but like you get a turn that didn't make the board any worse for you, and you're choosing not to grow the pot. So then the question is, why did you choose to grow the pot on the flop? I mean, if you were only going to bet one street of either the flop or the turn, why did you choose the flop? And I think it wasn't a choice. Right? Like I, I think essentially what happened was there, you know, Seth didn't say to himself like, "What do I want from this hand? What's my what's my plan? How many streets do I want to put in?" You know, he just sort of bet the flop by rote and then got to the turn and then was like, "Oh, actually, I don't know if I really want to play a big pot here," and, and, and checked. And I think you want to do that in the opposite. Like if you don't want to play a big pot with your hand, which is very reasonable on this board. I would respond to that by checking the flop. And once you have bet the flop and you haven't gotten raised, then I think you can reconsider that question of whether you want to play a big pot. And I think that you know, with that new information that your opponent chose not to raise the flop, I think you can, and, and the information that the turn is a safe card, I think you can actually choose to, to play a big pot here on the turn. Um, the river... I mean, yeah, I think, I think it is worth raising. Like, I think that realistically with... I think, you know, it's very unlikely your opponent has you beat with the way the board ran out and the fact that he didn't raise, um, the fact that he didn't check raise the flop, the fact that he's betting so small on the river. Like, I think all evidence points to you have the best hand. Um, in terms of, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that a big better raise, like, better represents uh, ace-king than or ace-queen than, than a small raise does. Um, a small raise is offering a better price to your opponent, so in theory he should call it more often. That doesn't necessarily make it better. Um I don't necessarily have a, a strong opinion on what the size is here. Um, I think it can even be like you might just have a sense of uh, who this player is. I think in general, in terms of like how to size bets, you want to have a value target. Um, many people have probably heard me talk about this before. Uh, so in this case, you'd probably be thinking, I want to get you know get called by top pair, and you can try to ask yourself like how much do I think this player will be willing to call with top pair. I think you probably want to be on the small side here, just because it's not very likely that you're bluffing. Um, I mean, you three bet preflop, people know you're pretty tight. People, it sounds like people know you don't bluff very much. So I think you kind of have to offer them a good price to compensate for the fact that it's not very likely that you're bluffing. Like if, if your opponent's getting a bad price and they know that you don't bluff, it's not going to be very tempting for them to call you.
that's how I would think about him. I think the more important thing is just that you raise. Um, whether or not he calls you, you know, I can't guarantee that. But if you're pretty confident you have the best hand, I think it's it's worth raising. Um, I think, again, with, with the hand reading that you can do up to this point, I don't think you really have to worry about getting re-raised. So hopefully that's helpful. Thank you, Seth, for uh, writing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we do actually have another strategy hand coming up now. Uh, before I get to that, I do want to uh, remind you or tell you for the first time that if uh, you benefit or you enjoy hearing me talk about strategy, well, first, you can hear me do it with Nate and with Carlos on uh, Thinking Poker Daily, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. You can get exactly what it sounds like, daily strategy segments from us. Um, and support the podcast while you're at it. Uh, but there's also an option uh, for me to make a custom strategy video for you. Uh, these, I think, are a really good value. Um, pretty much everybody I do these for, uh, I mean, I've never had anyone who was dissatisfied, but like a lot of the people that I do these for, you know, send me really glowing things afterwards of like, oh, this was you know, so helpful. I'm already thinking about poker differently. It's so useful to see the things uh, that, that I can improve or, or to get strategy advice that's really specific to me. Um, so what this is, is, and this is half the price that I uh, typically charge for one-on-one -on -one coaching, uh, you can send me a hand history from a tournament or from a cash game session. You can send me a database. You can just send me a list of questions. You can send me notes from a live session, and I'll make a video of myself um, you know, either reviewing your database or replaying your hand history in, in, in Poker Tracker, kind of, you know, whatever makes sense for the material that you give me, um, I'll, I'll make a custom video for you, a, a video that's addressing your questions or addressing your play and making suggestions to you about, uh, you know, specific issues that you have. Um, ways that you can get better material that you should be studying um, and I'll give you links and things to like stuff that I think would be useful for you so it's a really nice way it's a lot more economical than um than paying for like a big one-on-one -on -one coaching package and it's a way of uh I mean if, if you're looking to do a lot of your own study um and and you want some guidance on how to do that you just like an hour or two of this I think I can I can point you in a lot of useful directions so if you're interested in that um you can write me andrew at thinkingpoker.net you can dm me um you can contact me through patreon you know do what you need to do to, to get in touch uh, we'll we'll work it out let me know if you're interested and uh we will go from there this next question comes from Adam, who says, uh, Hi Andrew, I don't know if this makes me a huge fish or if it was the right play. I've only been playing poker for about a year. Started playing one, two, one cent, two cent online, now playing 25 cent, 50 cent. This is only my sixth time playing live poker ever. It's a one-two game at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. I've been sitting at the same table with the same people for all the entire morning, about five hours. Uh, I think my table image is tight but aggressive on the pots I'm involved in. It folds me on the button and I have aces. I raise the $10, which is a standard open for the table. The small blind and the big blind both call. Small blind has 300 Big blind has 700, hero covers both of them. 
So effective stack, uh, there's there's $30 roughly in the pot. Um, so a effective stack with a small blind is about 10. Effective stack with a big blind is about 23. So we're pretty pretty deep here and it's a multi-way pot. Hero has aces. The flop is 987 rainbow. Small blind checks, big blind checks. Uh, just as in the previous hand, I think there's a real decision about whether or not to bet the flop. And, you know, I can't say for certain, but I can say, and, and this is fairly common in these hands that we get, where, you know, people will will start with, uh, you know, they'll, they'll give me very um, thorough analysis of why they made the decisions that they made on the turn and river. And uh, I often hear nothing about, you know, why did I make this? So, okay, you actually don't have to justify why you raised aces pre-flop, but I don't think betting the flop is trivial. I'm not saying it's necessarily a mistake. I think there is some additional reason to do it in a multi-way pot compared to a heads-up pot, but I don't think betting the flop is trivial. Like, I, I think it is worth, just as in the previous hand, asking yourself, um, how much am I benefiting from folds? I think you can sometimes get people off of some gut shots of some weaker draws in a, in a multi-way pot. Uh, you know, drawing at like the low end of the straight is going to be a little more dangerous for your opponents in a multi-way pot. Um, I also think you're going to get a more honest, like, I think I, I'm less concerned about folding to a check raise in a multi-way pot. I think people are going to be more honest with um, whether that's right or wrong. I think it's, it's generally true that people do play more honestly in multi-way pots. So I think that reduces the risk of betting a little bit because I'm going to feel better about just folding to a check raise in a multi-way pot than I would in a heads up pot. So if you feel like well, I can bet, I can be doing pretty well against their calling ranges. And if I do get raised, I'll have an easy decision to just fold. Then I'm on board with betting. If you're going to feel like, well, if I if I bet and I get check raised, I'm not really going to know what to do. Um, then I think there's a pretty good case for checking because I don't think you're benefiting that much from folds. And I can tell you that you don't want to play a huge pot here. Like you're not looking to get all the money in. You're probably not looking to bet all three streets. So there's really not a lot of downside to checking the flop. Um, if you're not going to bet all three streets anyway, you're not necessarily missing out on anything by not betting the flop. Um, so what ends up happening, uh, the hero bets 20, the small blind calls, and now the big blind uh, says tanks for a few minutes uh, and then raises to $130. At this point, I've been playing with these two players for about five hours. I've never seen the big blind raise in this manner for the entire session. Small blind has also been extremely tight. Uh, I'm thinking of flatting, but I'm worried about the small blind calling or jamming over me. In my short time playing poker, it's been beaten in my head that one pair is uh, rarely good in a multi-way pot. I think small blind would only call with top pair better based on our history of playing together, and big blind is a total mystery to me. Seemed like a good player, though. Because of this, I start to lean more towards jamming, putting gut shots and top pair slash top two in a really tough spot. I've also bluffed a few hands already versus the big blind, so I think he would call lighter than usual. I think big, big blind takes this line with two pair, pocket sevens, pocket tens, jack ten, queen jack, maybe even six six. Small blind is a total mystery to me. If I flat, I'm terrified small blind or calls or rips over me and the pot is totally unmanageable. I think the only cards that make me feel better are a two through four, queen, jack, king, of course, another ace. Uh, after tanking for a long time, I ended up folding. I'm going to pause there to comment a little bit on, on things that he said so far. Uh, and the first of which is just like, like I was saying before, I think I, I wouldn't really bet the flop unless I would feel okay about just folding to this race. And I think you can feel okay about folding to this race. I think, uh, I mean, even just that range that you gave the big blind, 
sounds like an extremely strong range that you don't really want to call against. <laughs> There's a lot of hands in there that crush you, and the hands that you're ahead of, you're not very far ahead of them. Um, so I think like, one lesson here is just thinking in terms of equity. I think a lot of times uh, there's there's a concern with like, well, I, I don't want to fold when I might be ahead or just kind of, I think this is a little bit more true. This is an interesting thing actually from my recent interview with uh, Uri Peleg, which I uh, strongly encourage you to check out. It was a really good one, uh, packed with with good strategy talk. But um, one thing that he mentioned is you know, people are, they're just like, they're reluctant to fold over pair. You know, like when you have aces, um, you're going to be a little less likely to fold than when you have some other hand, just because there's a part of you that's like excited to have aces. And if you get the feeling when you have aces, like, oh, maybe I should fold these, like you probably should, because that feeling is overcoming a kind of presumption in, in the opposite direction about not wanting to fold when you have aces. Um, the, the other thing that I see happening here that... I don't like is this kind of um, wishy-washy is not quite the right word, but I can't think of a better one where it's like it's a little unclear to me what you'd be trying to accomplish by shoving other than just like making yourself more comfortable. Um, because they're sort of like, well, maybe I can make the big blind fold to pair, but then there's also like, but also the big blind thinks I've been jamming really wide. So like, maybe he'll call lighter than usual and, um, I'll actually like be ahead of what he's calling with, or, you know, I can put top pair in a tough spot, but like, why do you want to put top pair in a tough spot? Cause that's a hand that you're ahead of. Um, I, I think it's like, the, it's very, uh, nebulous, like what you'd actually be trying to accomplish by shoving here. And I feel like what's really going on is it's just a, like, how can I win this pot? And I think there's like, there's no reason to want to turn aces into a block. Like if that was the idea, if the idea was like, well, I think big blind has two pair, but I'm going to try to get them off of it by shoving. Um, that just purely feels to me like I'm trying to win this pot. There's no analysis of like why, like, and I don't think Aces is a good candidate for this. You'd much rather have um, like a Queen Jack or Ace 10 or something with some kind of draw would be a much better candidate for making that play than, than pocket Aces. Like, generally when you're, when you're being aggressive like this on early streets, you want to have, you want it to be a semi-bluff, right? You want it to be something where you have a chance of, of drawing out, especially if you're going all in. You want it to be something where you have a chance of winning, even if your opponent calls. And if you think that your opponent's, and I, I mean, I think it's like your opponent for stacking off for this much, their calling range should be fairly strong. Um, then you know, your aces are going to be in very bad shape when that happens. So I, I get the sense that the only reason our correspondent is like thinking about shoving here is just that he has aces and he wants to win the pot, and not that not that there's really a sense of like this is going to be a, a good play. Um, I also think like the fact I, I think similar to the previous hand, there's there's more hand reading that could be going on here, especially in terms of the small blind. Like his choice to not raise the flop is pretty meaningful. Because this is a multi-way pot, if he had like a set or something, he has a lot of incentive to raise because he doesn't want to give a good price to the big blind to call with some sort of draw. Like if you have aces and small blind has a set, he would like to raise and push big blind off of some kind of draw and get a heads up with, with you when you have the aces. Like that's the kind of thing that he should be trying to accomplish. Um, so I think when he just calls, I'm not that worried about him jamming over the top of you. I'm not even worried about that worried about him overcalling. Like I think if he overcalls, he's not a threat to you. Or maybe he has a draw of some kind, but like he's not—he doesn't have a better hand than you do. He's not just calling with a hand that's better than yours. So I—I I, I don't think the small blind is really that much of a concern. I, I think the big concern is just that like the big blind has a very strong check raising range. I don't think you're doing very well against it. I think shoving um, 
often results in you putting a lot of money in very bad. <laughs> I think you have a medium strength hand facing um, not just a polarized range, I think quite probably an overly strong range, and you just want to get out of the way. And again, like, I don't necessarily think betting the flop was a mistake, but if you're really going to feel unsure what to do when you get check-raised, I think there's not a lot of reason to bet the flop, because I don't think betting the flop is accomplishing that much in the first place. Um, so I, I definitely don't think betting the flop is, is mandatory. And I will say from my criticism, like Adam did make what I think is the right play at this point. So, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was sort of saying some things that I didn't like about the thought process, but uh, ultimately Adam did end up folding. Um, he said that the uh, small blind folded pocket sixes face up uh, and the big blind showed nine eight offsuit for top two pair. Adam says, I like to think that I made a good soul read on the big blind, uh, but I think I was more pushed to fold because I wasn't comfortable playing for my whole stack or pushing a huge chunk in to just fold on the turn. In hindsight, I think a jam could have pushed the big blind off of top two, especially since we were the two big stacks at the table. But if I can think of any board to fold aces to a raise, uh, maybe it's this board. Am I wrong? Is there no aces folding range? Maybe I'm just a fish. Um, you are not wrong. There are plenty of times when it's correct to fold aces, like before the flop, <laughs> unless you're playing some you know, satellite in a very specific situation, there's not going to be times before the flop to fold aces, because before the flop, aces are the nuts. After the flop, aces are rarely the nuts. On boards like this, they're somewhat far from the nuts. Um, and in multi-way pots, just like having one pair with no chance of improving in, in a multi-way pot with a lot of money behind, it's not a great hand. It's a very medium strength hand. And medium strength hands are the hardest hands to play in poker because they do have competing incentives. There are some reasons to want to bet the flop. There are also some reasons to not want to bet the flop. And I would love to see some more like, you know, weighing of those uh, in terms of like how you can get better. I think weighing those options and, and treating betting the flop as a choice rather than a thing that's automatic uh, I think that will be very useful um, for for Adam and probably for a lot of people listening. Uh, if you're only, if you if you don't want to put all your money in with aces, then like maybe don't bet the flop, and <laughs> that's that's one good way to keep the pot from getting too out of control. Like once you bet the flop and get called and get check raised, it's a little too late to be like, oh, this pot is getting un like it's already unmanageable. Like your chance to manage it was checking the flop. Once you bet the flop, it's out of your hand. Like your opponents can do things, and then like the like you've already lost lost management as it were over, over the pot to the extent that you can manage it. The way you do that is by checking the flop. And I think it would be totally legitimate, uh, and I think it would be even more so in the, the previous hand that we talked about to look at the board and think like this is not a board where i want to play a huge pot i i want pot control and the way i'm going to do that is by checking the flop that's the way to um to control the pot i think somehow like the, this this idea has like percolated through the poker community that you have to bet the flop and then if you want a pot control you can check behind on the turn um i don't know where that came from i would love to stamp it out i think it's very wrong uh, i think there's a lot of reasons and now there are some hands that are more vulnerable like if you had pocket jacks or something i think you'd have a lot more interest in betting the flop because you'd, you'd care a lot more about getting folds i mean you'd also have a gut shot so you know you have a little bit more interest in growing the pot maybe than when you have aces you also care a lot more about getting folds because you don't want a random like queen or king or ace to peel off and cost you the pot when you have aces, you know, there, it's not like your opponents can just turn an over pair. So I think you don't gain nearly as much from from folds. I think there is a pretty good case for um, for checking. I guess the last thing I want to address here is the you know I just wasn't comfortable playing for my whole stack, and I want to talk a little bit uh, again without attributing anything to Adam because I don't know what I'm not even 100 percent sure 
what he means by this. I can imagine at least two different interpretations. One is, you know, with this hand, like in this situation, I didn't think this hand was strong enough to play for a pot this large. And that I fully agree with. Um, if it was more, you know, this is a lot of money to me or feels like a lot of money to lose at poker, then I would say it's dangerous to be sitting at the table with that money. Um, and I get it. I mean, I the first time that I played, or one of the first times that I played live poker, it was not at Mohegan Sun, it was at Foxwoods. But it was a very similar situation where like, I was used to playing online. I was often, I think I was playing like $30 single table tournaments. And then I, you know, and I've got like hundreds of dollars on the table and I think I lost like four or $500 on that trip. And I was just like sick, you know, like it, felt, it was such a bad, like the drive back to Boston was such a miserable um, thing. And I mean, some of it is like, you have to have that experience at some point uh, if you're going to, get accustomed to playing in a certain stake you do have to sort of develop the stomach for the swings that, that could happen there but um i mean it is also like there are cheaper ways to to do like you could leave the table when you have 700 like if you're comfortable playing for 300 but not for 700 then you there, there's probably a case for leaving the table <laughs> especially if other people also have 700 like it is dangerous to have on the poker table money that you are not prepared to lose because especially when you're playing no limit that money is always at risk like it is always possible that the pot is going to get big enough that that money comes into play and if you're going to feel like i can't make good decisions um, i'm going to be like overly risk averse once the last of that money comes into play that's a really dangerous spot to be putting yourself in so again, I don't know whether that whether or not that's what Adam meant. I just wanted to put that out there because that was something that um, that came to mind when I was reading this. So thank you, uh, Adam. Thank you, everyone who has written in. If you would like to hear your question discussed on the show, you can send it to um, podcast at thinkingpoker.net. You can support the show, www patreon.com slash thinking poker daily you can commission custom videos uh write me andrew at thinkingpoker.net message me on twitter find a way and sign up for the uh wsop homeschool program at solve for why by going to solve for why.io slash question mark via equals andrew or to make life easy on yourself, just follow the link from the show notes or from the Thinking Poker Twitter feed. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good day, weekend, etc. Whatever is applicable for the time that you're listening. Take care. of a car, light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't.